Last week uh, we started a series uh, uh, like a going through an overview of the first five books of the Bible, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, these books written by Moses uh, are foundational books and very critical to our understanding of the whole Bible. Uh, we looked at the first two chapters of Genesis. Oh, my Bible is stuck here. We looked at the first two chapters of Genesis, chapters um, uh, one and two, uh, we looked at the sermon uh, that was titled, The God Who Creates. Today we're going to look at the next section that runs from Genesis chapter 3 to chapter 5. Uh, it's a whole unit, uh, a unit that um, teaches us uh, about the God who judges and saves. The God who creates is the same God who also judges and saves. Initially, I developed this message to cover the entire three chapters. But given that chapter three is so important, I decided to break this into two parts. I know where you're going. No, sometimes it happens. (laughs) Because Genesis 3, we just sang that beautiful song, Take Heart. Why? Why are we to take heart? Because we live in a broken world. Genesis 3 explains why things are broken. It's so foundational, that's why I wanted to focus today on Genesis 3, but it's the same unit. In Genesis 3, we are going to see God judges as well as God saves. Uh, As I mentioned last week, Genesis is about beginnings. Uh, Last week we saw uh, the beginning of the universe, including the beginning of the human race. And uh, in these three chapters, 3 through 5, We're going to be looking at the beginning of sin, judgment, death, as well as God's grace and his great salvation. But before we look into those truths, let's uh, look to the author of the text and acknowledge our need. Unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, works in our hearts, this whole thing is useless. So uh, please uh, join with me as I uh, lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord, what a beautiful reminder. Uh, Take heart. I have overcome the world, even though in this world you will have trouble. Even as we uh, studied the subject today of how all this brokenness came into existence, comfort our hearts to know that this brokenness will not be forever. You are returning. You will fix every single thing that is broken. Everything that is wrong will be made right. So even as we look at the text today, help us look at it with a sense of confidence, a sense of assurance that you, Lord Jesus, are in perfect control of every event in our lives. Some of us may be weeping. Would you please... In your mercy and kindness, wipe away those tears. We know the ultimate wiping away of all tears will come in the new heavens and new earth. But even now, I plead with you, would you please do that? Those who are broken by sin, repeated patterns of sin, and the effects of it, feeling helpless and in despair, Would you please speak a word of encouragement? Give us all attentive hearts and humble spirits to receive your word with gladness. Search the scriptures continually and look to your spirit to help us apply them. For your name's sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen. When you last week, we left off at Genesis 2 verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Genesis 1.31, which is kind of like a summary. God says, he looked at everything and it was very good. Very good. There was perfect relationship between Adam and Eve. Perfect relationship between God and Adam and Eve. Because there was only obedience. No disobedience. Work was a blessing. There was nothing but peace between mankind and the animal kingdom. But all of that was about to change in one instant. 
Sin was about to enter the perfect universe and completely change everything. To get an idea how much sin changed the universe, let me give you a small illustration. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Okay? 1189. 929 chapters in the Old Testament, 260 in the New Testament. Of all these chapters, only four describe a universe that is free from sin. Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22. So 1,190, 185 chapters describe a world that is affected by sin, which is 99.66% of the Bible talks about sin. You think sin is a big deal in the sight of God? The statistics speak for themselves. It, that fact alone tells us the devastating consequences of sin. So Genesis 3 tells us how sin came into this world. And it came with one seemingly harmless, but yet the deadliest of all questions. It's the same question that keeps hitting us again and again and again. Did God really say? That's how sin entered into this world, through the form of one question. Did God really say? In other words, the question was framed in such a way to make humanity the original mankind, Adam and Eve, to lead them along these lines, that God's word is to be subjected to humans. It's subject to human judgment. That was the deadly intent behind this question. So far, no questions in a perfect universe. Only obedience. Only obedience. But sin entered through this question, did God really say? And it came from the lips of the devil himself who came to Adam and Eve in the form of a serpent. While Genesis itself does not specifically mention the serpent as Satan, we get that from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2, where Satan is described as that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. That ancient serpent refers to Genesis 3. It's called the devil or Satan, the accuser. Obviously, this raises an important question. If everything was very good at the end of Genesis 1.31, how do we explain the presence of the devil? How did a holy angel become Satan? It had to have happened sometime between Genesis 2.25 and chapter 3, verse 1. Because if everything God created in Satan, all the angels were created beings. Everything was good. The fall must have happened between 2.25 and 3.1. Now the Bible as a whole, including Genesis, does not give explicit details about how a holy angel became Satan. But many believe there are a couple of passages, later passages in the Old Testament, that may shed some light as to how a holy angel became Satan. The first passage I want us to look at is Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15. For your benefit, the scripture verses are posted on the screen here. While this passage, Isaiah 14, is set in, in the context of a taunt against the king of Babylon, it has more than a reference to a human king. It seems to point to the fall of Satan. Look at verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. That word star comes from a Hebrew word which means shining one. That the Latin word for star is Lucifer, which is why the King James translates it's from the Latin word, not the Hebrew. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. Why? Why were you cast down? Here's the reason. Pay close attention to verses 13 and 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Would you notice that word I repeated five times in verses 13 and 14. In other words, it was pride that led Satan, who was once a perfect angel, 
to become the devil he wasn't happy just to be below god he wanted to be equal with god above all the other angels he needed to be like god no wonder he fell as verse 15 states but you are brought down to the realm of the dead to the depths of the pit pride pride is what brought satan down a second passage is ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 through 17 ezekiel 28 and even though even in ezekiel 28 in the immediate context the words were directed to the king of tyre the language makes it very clear it goes beyond a mere human king pay attention as i read this look at verse 11 the word of the lord came to me says ezekiel son of man take up a lament concerning the king of tyre and say to him this is what the sovereign lord says you were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty you were in eden the garden of god right away we know this goes beyond a human king right you were in eden the garden of god every precious stone adorned you carnelian chrysolite and emerald topaz onyx and jasper lapis lazuli turquoise and beryl your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created they were prepared so obviously you know lucifer was a was a beautiful uh, creature you were anointed as a guardian cherub for so i ordained you you were on the holy mount of god you walked among the fiery stones you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created so god created angels in holiness until verse 15 wickedness was found in you through your widespread trade you you were filled with violence and you sinned so i drove you in disgrace from the mount of god and i expelled you guardian cherub from among the fiery stones your heart became proud verse 17 your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor so i threw you to the earth i made a spectacle of you before kings pride brought satan down let me say as a side note when we walk in pride guess who we resemble we don't resemble the one who left heaven's glory came down we resemble the one who wanted to be like god once kicked out of heaven thrown to the earth satan immediately starts his evil work by tempting eve you may ask this question if god created all the angels holy how did the sin of pride enter satan's heart right huh the bible doesn't give too much answers to this complex question okay so i've been saying this i don't know for often in my preaching i want to be very careful with my responses okay all i can say is sin is the absence of righteousness just like darkness is the absence of light you cannot create darkness all you have to do is what turn the light off so the minute the holy angels ceased to be righteous they automatically became sinners like adam and eve the moment they ceased to obey god they became sinners that's all i can tell you that's all i can tell you when satan and a large group of angels who followed him in his pride they did that right away they ceased to be holy angels those who remain faithful to god are the ones who are called the holy angels they are called elect angels first timothy 5 verse 21 so both but now both the holy angels on the one side and satan the devil and all his followers the demons are now permanently set in their state there will not be any change in their nature they will never be redeemed the fallen angels will never be redeemed jesus did not die to redeem fallen demons i know there are a group of people who actually pray for satan to be forgiven to be redeemed that's false teaching it's not going to happen and this satan now thrown down to the earth possessed the body of a serpent and came to eve with this deadly question did god really say now did snakes talk before the fall something so because eve doesn't seem to be surprised hard to be conclusive but this once holy angel 
comes with this question. Look at verse verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Keep in mind, the serpent itself when created was not crafty because Satan possessed now. That's the idea. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See that word crafty? is closely associated with the word naked of chapter 2 verse 25. There's kind of a word play that is going on here. In other words, the serpent's craftiness will overturn the innocence symbolized by the couple's nakedness. How will that innocence be thrown away by bringing sin into this world? Notice the way this question was posed. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What is the intent behind this? Satan wants, to, wants Eve to see God as a limiting God. So, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? That's what he's implying. But that's not what God said. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 29. Genesis 1 verse 29. God's, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Notice how generous God was in giving every plant, every fruit tree for food, all except one. God gave everything. And again, look at chapter 2, verse 16. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. The focus is on the lavish generosity of God. Free to eat from any tree. But that's not how Satan frames his question, does he? So, you can't have it all, huh? That's how he's approaching Eve. His goal, he wants to see Eve, he wants Eve to see God as a stingy, a limiting God, not as a loving, gracious and generous God. That's why it's always good to remember, once we forget the lavish generosity of God, all we will see is God being a limiting God who is out to steal all our joy by withholding things from us. That's why it is so important to keep counting our blessings, to be thankful at all times. There's a reason why scripture commands us to be thankful at all times and all circumstances. Notice Eve's response and pay close attention how she was slowly falling into Satan's deception. Look at verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Notice, she does not say fruit from every tree. That word every is now missing. It's missing. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. We don't explicitly read about God prohibiting them from touching the tree in the middle of the garden. But one thing is sure. Eve clearly understood that she should not be eating from that forbidden tree. That much is clear. Satan now has seen Eve not taking a strong stand in defending God. He's seen it. She's not taking a strong stand in saying, no, you're wrong. This God is a generous God. We have so much. She doesn't do that. Now he goes in for the kill. Look at verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. No, that's how he starts out this response. No, you certainly will not die. Folks, here's the first lie. A lie that came from the mouth of the serpent, the devil, and what was the lie? Denial of God's judgment. The very first false doctrine introduced was introduced here. It has to do with denying God's judgment for sin. Don't worry, do what you want, no consequences. That's the lie Satan sold to Eve and has been selling it since then. Here's where the devil got the title, a liar and father of all lies, John chapter 8 verse 44. And notice the reason as he gives as to why God did not want anybody to eat from the forbidden tree. Look at verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What he's saying is, Eve, God hates competition. That's why he doesn't want anybody to eat from the tree. That's Satan's lie. What he failed to say that in reality, if Adam and Eve were to eat from the tree, they would not become like God because God cannot experientially know evil. They will become like Satan. 
He wanted to be like God. And guess what? He became the devil. It's more like you'll become like me. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. That's why we need to understand sin never comes with an advertisement I'm going to destroy you. You don't see an advertisement for smoking coming from a man who is puking his lungs out with blood and dying. It's always that those of you from the past would remember the cool Marlboro man, the cowboy, or like alcohol, the drug addictions. It doesn't come out that way. They always portray it differently. That's how sin always comes. Always comes that way. Eve, it's not good to be under the authority of someone. Even if it's God himself, liberate yourself. Go ahead. Eat. That was the message. By now, Eve is swallowing everything that the devil is saying. You see, the fall already started in her heart. Because it always starts in the heart. You don't get up one morning and just sin. I mean, we do. Because we're in the pattern of sinning. But you get what I'm saying. A lot of times it's thought in the heart before the act comes out. Here in her heart, she didn't defend God. She's not seeing God as who he really is. Notice what she did. Verse 6. All that was left was the actual act of sin because the threat of judgment has been removed. The one thing that was stopping was judgment. That threat is removed. God is a liar. That's what Satan is saying. Nothing will happen to you. Go for it. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. She's so caught up now with this forbidden tree. All she could see was the beauty of this tree and what it offered. It's interesting to note This is not the only tree whose fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Go back to chapter 2. Look at verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. You see that? All the trees were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But now, because she is so fixated... She can only see this tree good for food and pleasing to the eye. That's the essence of temptation. Once our heart is bent on doing evil, we will be blind to everything else. Nobody as beautiful as this woman. Nobody as beautiful as this man. It's okay for me to step out of my Marital bonds. No house as beautiful as this. No car, no job as great as this. The one that I still don't have. It's always at the heart. That's the mindset we will have when we forget the blessings of what we do have and focus on that one thing. We just don't have it yet. Just still seems to be within reach. So he took some of the fruit. doesn't say apple tree, by the way. Though it's often portrayed as such. So it's okay to use apple computers, I guess. She ate it and gave some to her husband who was with her and he also ate it. By the way, was Adam there all along or did he only appear later? Some think he wasn't there. Well, others think he was there on the side as an observer. Hard to be definitive. I personally lean on the side he was there. That seems to be the natural flow of the text. Plus the pronouns you in the first five verses there are all in the plural. That's why if you have a King James version, it will have it as ye, Y-E, the first five verses when you read. So he was, there's my take. Both Adam and Eve, instead of trusting God and in his sure and reliable word, trusted Satan and his lies. See, at the root of all sin is unbelief in God's word. Unbelief in God's word. That's why they went ahead and ate it. And you know what's a sad thing? Eve could have easily said, stop, let me check with God. Right? Because God was communing with them. No. 
once you want to do sin, you will not look into God's word or you will reinterpret God's word. Again, goes back to the heart. Goes back to the heart. Notice what immediately happened here. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. As Satan said, their eyes were indeed opened. But not in the positive sense, but in the negative sense. They are now filled with shame and guilt and act immediately to cover themselves. They now knew evil by experience. As a result, state of perfection. The innocence was gone. Perfect righteousness gone. The minute they disobeyed, they ceased to be righteous. Remember, sin is the absence of righteousness. The the minute they listened to the prince of darkness, they lost their status as the children of light. They had bought Satan's lie about no judgment, no death for sin, and they would learn from this point on whose word would prevail. Would it be God's word or Satan's word? A holy God, can he be silent when his creatures rebel against him? No. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, second part says this, be sure that your sin will find you out. Be sure that your sin will find you out. And that's exactly what happened next. Your sin will find you out. Sooner or later, sin catches up to us. Make no mistake. We can never outsmart God. Never. Look at verse 8 and 9. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man Interesting, isn't it? To the man. Where are you? God didn't call Eve, but Adam first. Why? As the head of the house, he was held responsible. Not only head of his house, but head of all humanity. Headship belonged to Adam. Notice Adam's response. He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Paul tells us in Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. Right here it started. Sinners don't seek after God. They run, they hide because they're afraid. Sin brings shame, guilt and fear. But we see a holy God in his love coming to seek sinners. God was and is always the seeker. God was and is always the seeker. We seek God as a result of him working in our hearts to seek. He's the seeker. God probed Adam for the reason for his hiding. Verse 11, and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I mean, didn't God know Adam ate from the tree. Of course he did. Then why the question? So Adam had an opportunity to acknowledge his sin and take full responsibility. But sadly, that's not what Adam did, did he? Notice what he said. Verse 12. The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. If you're using the church Bibles here, it's on the same page, on the left side, page 4. Just look at the top verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. The same Adam, how did he describe his wife? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now he blames his wife. Right? I, I believe here's where that statement, throwing someone under the bus originated. Bone of my bones to the woman you put in my life. It's not like Eve forced the fruit down his throat. He was, he gladly took and ate of it. In reality, Adam blamed more than Eve. If you notice Adam's response closely, he blamed God. The woman you put here with me, she gave me. She is guilty, but God, she didn't come on her own. You put here with me. If only God, you hadn't brought this person in my life or made me with these desires or had made me, if you hadn't made me wait so long, I would never have done this sin. How often we've heard that. Might have even said that ourselves. 
if only things were a little different in my life, God, I would not have sinned. Indirectly blaming God. God doesn't respond to Adam yet. He moves on to Eve. Sadly, she didn't do much better either. Then the Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Yes, there was some truth to it. It's like what Adam had some truth to it. But again, both these responses showed a clear failure to acknowledge full responsibility for their sin. I have sinned. I and I alone am guilty. God doesn't go about dialoguing with the serpent, does he? Because he would never redeem the devil and his angels. Instead, he goes straight now to pronouncing judgment. The God who judges unleashes his judgment. He goes straight to cursing and predicting Satan's ultimate fall and all of that was going to happen through the means of the woman he had deceived. Sin came. In one sense, he brought sin through Eve. Adam was held accountable but also through that woman. He's going to bring a seed that's going to ultimately destroy him. That woman's offspring, her seed, will not only be at battle with the serpent's offspring, but finally that serpent will be crushed by that ultimate seed who would come through the woman whom we know is the Messiah himself. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat you will eat dust all the days of your life. Some think that the serpent before the fall was an upright creature and because of God's judgment, humbled, brought down to the ground, sort of a picturesque way to show how God brings down those who are proud in heart. I think there's a lot of truth to that. What is interesting is, even in the coming kingdom that Jesus will set up, the serpent will continue to be a crawling creature and eating dust. In Isaiah 65 verse 25, in the context of new heavens and new earth, this is what we are told. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And then notice, here it comes, dust will be the serpent's food. We'll be reminded, this is what happens when a person's heart is lifted up against God in the new heavens and new earth. Eternal reminder. God continues his judgment on the serpent. Look at the first part of verse 15. Pay close attention. Very important text. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, the text reads offspring, but you look at the footnote seed. I prefer the term seed because of all the richness of that term between your seed and hers. This is the reference to the perpetual enmity between the woman's seed, referring to the godly line of men, starting from Seth, which we will see the next time, the enmity that Seth and his descendants would face from the hands of those who are the children of the devil, starting from Cain. Look at the second part of verse 15. He will crush your head. Now it's narrowed down to a specific individual. The ultimate reference, ultimate picture pointing to that seed, the Messiah himself. He, that's Jesus, who came through the godly land of Seth, whom Eve would bear. He will crush your head, prophecy about Satan's ultimate defeat by Jesus. Jesus, through his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, defeated Satan and one day, will return in glory to fully complete that victory when he would throw Satan into the lake of fire. Revelation 20. And verse 10 says this, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The ultimate defeat of Satan is still future for us now. But the defeat on the cross is past. It is done. And that phrase, you will strike his heel, is a reference to Satan inflicting Jesus with the painful experience of the cross. It is painful but not as deadly as the crushing blow, the crushing of the head that Jesus inflicts on Satan. In the midst of this judgment passage, we see hope for humanity. That's why verses 14 and 15 are often called as the first words of the gospel. First mention of good news after the fall, the mentioning of a Messiah, a Savior who would come 
and not only crush Satan, but more importantly, fill us with hope that we sinners can be saved from eternal destruction. God then moves on to pronounce judgment on the woman. Not a curse, but judgment. In two areas, the woman would experience judgment. Pain in the physical sense and pain in the emotional sense. In the relational aspect, we see that. And both would come from intimate relationships. Look at the first part of verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. That's physical pain in a close relationship for the woman with her children. Then look at the second part of verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's emotional pain in the closest relationship with a spouse. That phrase, your desire will be for your husband, is not a reference to sexual desire as many sometimes conclude. It has a negative connotation to it. A desire to control the husband. That same word desire appears two other times in the Old Testament. The next time it appears is in the very next chapter. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. Here's God warning Cain. Cain wants to kill Abel. So God is warning Cain in verse 7. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. So you can see there. Since desire is not in a good sense, it has a connotation of controlling a person. But God's command is what? Deal with sin harshly. Rule over it. Don't let sin control you. In the same sense now, the woman's or the wife's natural propensity would be that to rule over her husband instead of submitting to his leadership and that always results in chaos because God's natural design that's what God's design is. Submission there. And to compound that now, the husband, instead of exercising loving leadership, will rule over her. That word rule has the idea of harsh leadership, sinful domination. So perfect harmony in the marriages as a result of the fall affected severely. Both the wife struggles and the husband struggles. More can be said, but let's, for the sake of time, move on to the judgment on the husband. Look at me at verses 17 through 19. To Adam he said, because you listen to your wife, this is not a prohibition in terms of never listen to your wife. This is sinful listening. That's the idea. Okay, so, uh, because you listen to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground. Pay close attention. Adam is not cursed. The ground is cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it. All the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. Spiritual death right away happened here for Adam and Eve separated from the life of God and as a result physical death would soon follow after they live out the rest of their physical lives on earth work which existed before the fall which was such a good thing would now become toilsome wearisome until mankind returns to the dust so all the guilty parties here the garden judged, Satan judged, Eve judged, Adam judged, Satan's lie was exposed. Contrary to his words, judgment did come and it came swiftly. God's word proved to be true, triumphing over Satan's lies. None of their excuses cut it. We cannot stand before God on the day of judgment and say, somehow, this is why I live this way, let me in, it won't work. Appointed die once after that the judgment. Now is the time repent notice God's judgment on Adam and Eve the judgment is in those areas specific areas God designed them to have complete fulfillment for the woman she's designed 
to have fulfillment in that sphere, in that home with the husband and the children. That's it. And the man to find that fulfillment in the workplace. That's it. Sometimes we say, hit where it hurts. God knows. This is how I designed you. But because of your sin, those things are now severely affected. Realizing immediately that they didn't die. Notice what Adam did. Very important. Look at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. This is a great act of faith by Adam. He believed God's word now because through Eve an offspring is going to come. That's why he names her Eve. Remember again, naming is still headship. He gives her that name. That is a great act of faith. We overlook these little things here. Adam responds in faith. She would become the mother of all the living. And God saw that faith and notice what God does next. Verse 21, extremely important verse. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Great significance this verse is. It teaches us, first of all, that God will not accept our own way of dealing with sin and trying to be right with him. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? Put the leaves covering. That was their way of trying to get right with God. God said, nope, that's not going to cut it. I am the one that decides how you can be right with me. I will clothe you. Sinners can never be reconciled to a holy God on their own efforts. Our good works are filthy rags, says Isaiah. Only God can reconcile sinners back to himself. That's why God stepped in. What does it mean, garments of skin? What does it mean? Skin refers to that outer layer that covers living beings alone. There's only Adam and Eve. So somebody else had to be put to death to get that skin to cover them. Had to be animals. Here's the beginning of sacrifice. Most likely they were lambs. So Adam and Eve, for the first time, they would see death. Sometimes we see a, 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 a very violent uh, image. Maybe it's in a movie or a TV show. It's, it's so violent that it grosses us out who are so used to seeing violence. Imagine Adam and Eve. Until now, no blood was shed right in front of their eyes. Blood is shed. And skin is stripped to clothe them. They would have known. That's what my sin brought. Death. Death to a substitute. To cover me. So that I can have life. There's the picture of substitutionary atonement. Right in Genesis. We see. Someone else has to die for your sin in order for you to be accepted. So now you see the gospel here. Now you see it's the God who judges, it's the God who saves. Adam and Eve didn't come up with this plan. They had a plan, but that plan was rejected. The plan was rejected. This is grace right in the garden. God clothing them, looking forward to that time when his son, the ultimate lamb, the one who would crush Satan's head, would die on the cross for the sins of more than Adam and Eve, for all mankind, grace in the midst of judgment. Notice what else God did. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Again, we see the grace and love of God in that he did not want sinful humanity to live in this miserable condition. Imagine, those of you who have health issues, those of you who are a little older in life, when you get up with, uh, you go to bed with aches and pains and you lie down with aches and pains and you get up with aches and pains, would you want to live in this miserable condition forever? No. So God said, I don't want people to live in this miserable condition. If they eat from the tree of life, that's how they will live. So I'll give them new bodies, new universe. So, there will be a shelf life. Physically, they will cease living after a while. Their soul will live on forever and will give them new bodies and raise them up. So God, knowing that he would make all things new in the new creation, where all who by faith approach him on his terms will live with new bodies, 
did this. Verses 23 and 24. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Again, it's banished him. There's so much of specific focus only on Adam. Do you notice? That's why Paul would write in Romans 5. Sin came through Adam. Men, I'll deal with men and young men in part two of this message in terms of the great responsibility we have. Banishing from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends chapter 3. A chapter that it's the beginning of sin and judgment and also the beginning of God's saving grace. A chapter filled with tragedy and yet with hope. In this broken world, take heart, right? We can take heart. Because Genesis 3 gives us that hope because of the grace of God. And for the Jews living in the wilderness, they're moving towards the promised land. Moses has written this. They're hearing this being read Two things would have come to their mind. At least two things. Number one, they would realize a holy God will judge sin. They already saw this in Egypt. They've already been seeing, been seeing this throughout the wilderness journey as to what happened to those who rebelled against God's commands. Second, they would also know this. A holy God will forgive sinners who come to him by the means of God-appointed sacrifices. Meaning, while they were in the wilderness, God told them, Set up the tabernacle, what kind of sacrifices you can bring, who can kill it, how do you approach it. Now that would make sense to them even more. This is why we need to follow God's instructions. Because going back, this is how God did. He didn't accept Adam and Eve's way of getting right with him for the covering of their sin. It has to be God-appointed means. Now, Moses would have said, now you see why not everyone can approach to offer sacrifices. There's a certain way, God-prescribed way. For us reading this, this side of the cross, so much significance there, isn't it? First of all, we see Jesus clearly in these chapters. How so? We get to see Jesus as his promised Messiah, this promised Savior of Genesis 3, 14 and 15, the one who would crush Satan's head and the one through whom we can have all our sins forgiven. First John 3, 8. This is what John says, the second part. The reason the Son of God appeared, we're in the midst of Christmas season, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Piece by piece, Jesus was going to destroy and bring us into the new creation. Through Adam, sin was brought into this world. First Adam. Jesus describes the second Adam. Not only crushed Satan's head, but also brought salvation to mankind. First Adam failed in the perfect garden, perfect environment where all his needs were met. Everything was met. Jesus, the second Adam, when tested repeatedly, including in the wilderness when he was weak, and thirsty stood firm in his obedience to the Father. He stood firm in his obedience to the Father. And finally, on that dark night in another garden in Gethsemane, when faced with that ultimate choice of obeying God, an obedience that would lead him to a tree, the cross, Jesus chose to obey. Tim Keller said this. First Adam ate of the tree in disobedience and died. Second Adam ate of the tree as obedience and died. But what a difference the second death makes for us. By going to the cross, Jesus rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. He took upon himself the curse for our sins. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.13 tells us he took that as a result. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's why Paul could say in Ephesians 1.7 because Jesus 
took that sacrifice, did that. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And not only that, because of Jesus' saving work, those who are his by faith, guess what? That tree of life that is forbidden now, we will have access to it. The new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 22 verse 14, last book describes this way. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. That tree of life which is taken away will be given to us free access because Jesus Christ has paid the full price. Those who wash their robes is a picture of those who are clothed in Christ positionally and practically. They live a life that pursues holiness, that pursues obedience. And one day we will be made completely holy and blameless. And we'll have access to that tree of life. The Bible is clear. It is only through Jesus we will be fully restored back into that perfect relationship that God desired when he created mankind. Any other means of approaching the Father and to be accepted by him will be rejected. Only one means, Jesus. Jesus. So if you have never put your faith in Jesus, that ultimate lamb sent by God as a sacrifice for our sins, please do it now. Turn from your sins. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Doesn't matter how much you've messed up. Doesn't matter how much doubts you have. Come. Ask him to make you to come by helping you to see yourself as a sinner who has grieved him, who has offended him. Ask him to do that work in your heart. Unless he does that work in your heart, you cannot come on your own. Trust in Jesus, the one who died for your sins and was raised again by the power of the Spirit to show that God has fully accepted his sacrifice for sins. Come in faith. Allow God to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus alone can give you that right standing because he took your judgment so that all who would put their faith in Jesus will never have to face any judgment. Listen, there's no other way to be right with God other than through Jesus. So come in this Messiah predicted in chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. But that's not all. There's another critical lesson for us. We must also constantly remember the devastating consequences of sin as we realize the God of the Bible is a very holy God. We cannot be casual about sin. Believers cannot be casual about sin. Even a small sin has major consequences. That's the lesson Genesis will teach us over and over again. There's no such thing called a minor sin. Through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit alone, we can live the holy life God calls us to live. This means, for example, we have now the power to pursue holy marriages, even though the fall has drastically affected it. In Christ, marriages can be redeemed and restored. Earlier I mentioned to you that word desire appears three times in the Old Testament. Chapter 3, verse 14, verse 16. Which, which verse was it? Something like that. And then chapter 4, verse 7. And third is in the book of Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10. This is what Song of Solomon chapter 7 verse 10 says, it's in the context of a young woman in love saying these words to her about her lover. I belong to my beloved and his desire is for me. Here the word desire is in a positive sense. Both man and woman having a pure desire for each other in coming towards holy matrimony and in marriage. Not the unholy desire we're talking about here. In Christ, the Holy Spirit works in marital relationships in order that this kind of a holy desire can be cultivated and displayed throughout the time of marriage. Yes, it is still a hard process. One that requires constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit because the wife's natural bent due to her inherent sinful nature is to control the husband. And the husband's natural bent 
due to his inherent sinful nature is to harshly rule over the wife. But Jesus will give the victory to keep on putting to death that kind of a natural inclination and to pursue this kind of a marriage that he designs for us. In Christ, marriages can be redeemed. Doesn't matter how much it's messed up, it can be redeemed and can be restored. But we cannot take sin lightly. Not only in the marital area, as followers of Christ, we now have the power to honor God in our workplaces. Even though the fall has affected work. And yes, we will keep facing temptations in various realms, similar to what Adam and Eve did till the day we die. That same question, did God really say, is the same question that is posed to us in various posed to us on various fronts on a daily basis. Did God really say it's inappropriate to have physical relationship before marriage? Did God really say you cannot marry an unbeliever? Did God really say you have to be gentle, humble and forgiving? Did God really say you have to put the needs of others before your own? Did God really say you have to be an active part of a local church? Did God really say you have to be faithful in your marriage? Did God really say you cannot love the world? Did God really say you cannot live in worry, anxiety? Did God really say you cannot hold on to these worldly things? Same question posed over and over in various ways. But God's word is clear again. For the believer living under the authority of Jesus, this is what the word of God says. First John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Verse 16 echoes Genesis 3 of Eve seeing and desiring. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away but whoever does the will of God lives forever. You say I have eternal life, I want to live forever, then do the will of God that is found in the word of God. So when we are faced with, did God really say, faced with temptation, we come to the word. We pray the word. Get on our knees. I'm tempted Lord, help me. Open the word. God has spoken. His word is eternal in the heavens. God doesn't change his mind. He has not changed his mind after giving his word. Listen, the graveyard is proof positive that God's judgment will always prevail over Satan's lies. But also, the empty tomb is proof positive that the same God who judges is the one who saves. Jesus defeated death on our behalf because he took all that judgment that we deserve. So we no longer need to fear death. We no longer need to live in fear of judgment, but live an obedient life, a life that still fears God, but a life that seeks to obey Jesus' commands because we love him even if it costs us our life. Like Paul, we too can say, as he said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory through Jesus and like Paul because we believe in the certainty of our future resurrection this bodily resurrection <coughs> we can stand firmly to the end and continually give ourselves to the work of the Lord because we know our labor in the Lord is not in vain 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. therefore my dear brothers and sisters stand firm let nothing move you always give yourselves Fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord, your labor for Jesus Christ is never going to be 
in vain. Father, we pray that you will seal these truths to our heart. Help us to take sin seriously. Help us to take your judgment seriously. Help us also to love you, adore you for your great salvation, Lord Jesus. With reverence and awe and love and trembling and fear, help us to cherish you. You are the only Savior. There is salvation found in no other name other than the name of Jesus. We affirm that. Help us to live a life that is filled with the power of the resurrection. A life that conquers sin. A life that commits itself daily to the washing of the word. Let your word cleanse us. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth is what you prayed on our behalf, Jesus. Let that be fulfilled in the lives of everyone present here. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you for your resurrection. With gratitude in our hearts, we pray. Amen.